Let us worship God. first reading is from the prophet Isaiah, the 58th chapter, beginning with the ninth verse. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. Holy God, we give you thanks for these ancient words and for the lives of those who have carried them down throughout the ages. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds this morning that we might hear a word from you this day. Amen. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Holy One will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach the restorer of streets to live in. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Holy One honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, serving your own interests, or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Holy One, and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. 
I will feed you with the heritage of your ancestor Jacob, for the mouth of the Holy One has spoken. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then, there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. 
But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Here ends the reading. One of the things that we find sprinkled throughout the Gospels are these miracle stories. They're really everywhere, um, these stories. You can't turn a page in the Gospels without running into some situation which Jesus enters and divinely transforms just by the mere fact of his presence. Stories of healings, of storms being stilled, of bread being multiplied, of water turning into wine. Wherever Jesus is, it seems things happen. Things change, situations change, people change. Jesus doesn't just seem to stay in his lane, as we sometimes say. He doesn't leave things as they are, and that is really, really good news for people, especially those people living on the margins of society. Jesus, for instance, touches a leper and sets him free both from his disease and from the isolation that is caused by his disease. And now there is one life that will never be the same. The miracles Jesus performs are a clear demonstration of his authority, a way to announce to the world, in Jesus the Christ, the kingdom is here. In Jesus the Christ, God is here. Okay, but that's also the problem, isn't it? God can be such a disruptive presence. Change is great, but sometimes don't we just want things to stay the same? We know from reading these miracle stories that more often than not, the miracles Jesus performed made more trouble for Jesus, as well as for those who, who the miracle was, was, um, happened to. Um, more trouble than we would expect when something good really happens. So Jesus, for instance, miraculously produces a lot of free bread for 5,000 people. And they naturally 
get the wrong idea about Jesus and want to follow him only for the things that he can do. I have an 18-month-old granddaughter who sees me and sometimes when she greets me will say, Mana, which is her name for me, Mana Cookie. <laughs> cookie is the thing she somehow associates with me. For some reason, yeah. It's like Mana Cookie is my name. So maybe for those 5,000 people, something similar is happening, right? It's like Jesus, bread. And they think, ooh, magical bread. What else can Jesus do for us? Let's make this guy king and we can find out. So after that miracle, Jesus has to kind of go into hiding <laughs> for a while. He's become popular for the wrong reason. Okay, here's another example of a miracle story going awry. Jesus gives sight to a blind man. And we think, whoa, that's a really good thing. Who can argue with somebody being given their sight? But a lot of people in high places feel threatened by Jesus' authority. And they have to investigate this healing as if the healing is some sort of crime. This Jesus, where does his power come from? Who does Jesus think he is? God? So by the time this miracle story ends, the religious authorities throw the formerly blind man out of the temple and they conspire to shut Jesus down permanently. He's gone too far. If you mess with our systems, Jesus, be prepared for us to mess with you. So I want to ask this morning, why are these miracle stories even in our Bibles? The miracles of Jesus seem to be a mixed bag at best. They're good stories. Some of them have happy endings. We love how Jesus transforms people. But if we're honest, do we believe this? Do we believe Jesus transforms people? And by people, I mean us. Don't these miracle stories seem too much like fairy tales to happen in the real world? People don't walk on water. Bread doesn't just materialize out of thin air. And as, and as I'm sure we've experienced, not everyone who gets sick gets healed, even when we have prayed for a miracle. So why are these stories here? Why does scripture insist we deal with these hard-to-believe supernatural occurrences which frankly seem geared for a less enlightened time. Because now we have science to explain the world and technology to improve it. Why do we need these miracle stories and how are we to receive them? Okay, take this story, for instance. It's the Sabbath day and a woman walks into the synagogue bent over from a condition that has plagued her for 18 years. Her condition isn't life-threatening. It's not life or death. She's not on her death, deathbed. But imagine a life in which you cannot stand up. You can't look anyone in the eye. You're stuck staring at your own feet. 
in this sort of crouching posture, a posture of humiliation. She's like some of those elderly ladies I see in Chinatown who may have worked in sewing factories for all their lives, or like my grandma, who peeled shrimp for the restaurant industry, um, hunched over a table for many hours of the day for many years of her life. These women worked literally locking their bodies in that bent over position. Now the woman in this story doesn't ask to be healed. She didn't go to church that morning expecting a miracle. She's probably used to feeling small and invisible, even at church. So it's already something of a miracle when Jesus spots her in a crowd, calls her over, and laying his hands on her says, woman, you are set free. Just that word from Jesus is enough to unbind her from that spirit that has crippled her. Because immediately she starts to uncurl and unfurl, standing up tall for the first time in 18 years. She gives glory to God because it is God who's just done this mighty deed. In Jesus the Christ, the kingdom is here. In Jesus the Christ, God is here. I love in the story how this miracle wasn't done in a corner, off to the, off to the side in a discreet fashion. I think Jesus very purposefully chooses this Sabbath day and very ch purposely chooses this public setting to heal this woman naming her daughter of Abraham before the whole congregation, who maybe had some other not-so-nice names for her. But now, in front of everyone, she's the daughter of Abraham. Jesus does that for her, but he also does that for her community. See, the miracle is not just that she is physically healed, but that they are relationally healed. She is seen and honored by Jesus, and the whole congregation is given a chance to see and honor her too. This miracle is for all to see, for everyone to celebrate that the grace of God has come to this very place, and that one of their own is restored. Now you might think that everyone who gathered at church that day and saw what they saw would be giving Jesus and each other high fives. But no, that's not what happens. This is another problematic miracle story, right? There are some who witness the miracle, but they still do not see it. Jesus has healed on the Sabbath when as their own law says, no work ought to be done. So these folks, they do not see a miracle. They see an infraction. They see in this healing a threat to their system, to the way they understand and have organized their lives. 
the leader of the synagogue, Luke says, is indignant. I didn't look this up, but in my mind, indignant is like mad, but with a little self-righteousness thrown in. It's angry with a big dose of exasperation. Come on, does Jesus not know how this is supposed to work? There are six days on which work ought to be done. That's how it's been done for hundreds of years. This is the way it's always been. We already know the way to God. Maybe because I was a church leader in a setting where I felt responsible for maintaining good order and trying to live up to all that was expected of me as a pastor that I really, really feel for this guy. I feel his burden. I understand his need to be clear about rules. He's charged with keeping the Torah before the people and upholding age-old traditions. He's on a course that's already set. Is there anything, any space ready for something new? It's almost like no miracle needed here. We, we've got this. See, he's an authority figure with an awful lot to lose if he's really to take in this miracle. If he's to receive the summons that this moment is and let Jesus call him by a new name. Which, by the way, in case you missed it, is hypocrite. That's what Jesus calls him. And I don't know, this seems kind of harsh for someone who's just doing his job. Jesus can't just come in and change things up, can he? Break the rules which have been in place for like forever? Let's give this leader the benefit of the doubt and assume he really wants to do right by his people. This leader is acting out of what he knows. Israel's tradition and Israel's history, the law and the prophets, this whole glorious and messy story of the people of God. This man knows a lot, it's true, but what he knows is still far, far, far short of the new thing God is doing right now in Jesus the Christ. See, I look at this guy and I want there to be a miracle for him too. I want Jesus to have compassion on his blindness. I want Jesus to touch this man's heart and reach down into his soul and set him free from the spirit that is crippling him. That spirit of hypocrisy, which has him puffed up with certainty and pride, that's made him blind to the wonders of God's grace. I want Jesus to say the word and return this man too to his humanity. Because like the woman, he too is bound. He too is crippled by a spirit that has, has locked him in a religious system from which he cannot extract himself. To enter the kingdom of God, he will have to surrender his certainty 
to become like a child. He will have to let go of his stature as a leader in his community and all those ways this has defined his life. Let go of a system which has put God in a box. He can't just keep doing what he's been doing, trying harder, pushing more, as if self-effort could ever be the cure for death. I believe in miracles because I want to believe that this man and I, that we, that every single person on this planet, we are never locked into our old stories, whatever old stories these might be. God is always, always doing a new thing, calling us by our new names, creating a new community prepared for a new creation, one miracle story at a time. Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, Leaving Church, wrote a passage that so resonated with me that I made a photocopy of that page and kept it in my journal and just kind of stared at it for months. It seemed to mirror something to me that I hadn't seen so clearly before. It felt like a rebuke, but also an invitation. Barbara is an Episcopal priest, which you may or may not relate to, but I'm going to read a kind of longish section and invite you to see if it resonates with you. <clears throat> if I had to name my disability, I would call it an unwillingness to fall. On the one hand, this is perfectly normal. I do not know anyone who likes to fall. But on the other hand, this reluctance signals mistrust of the central truth of the Christian gospel. Life springs from death, not only at the last, but also in the many little deaths along the way. When everything you count on for protection has failed, the divine presence does not fail. The hands are still there, not promising to rescue, not promising to intervene, promising only to hold you no matter how far you fall. Ironically, those who try hardest not to fall learn this later than those who topple more easily. The ones who find their lives are the losers, while the winners come in last. For most of my adult life, what I have wanted most to do, most to win, is nearness to God. This led me to choose a vocation that marked me as God's person, both in my eyes and in the eyes of others. I gave myself to the work the best way I knew how, which sometimes exhausted my parishioners as much as it exhausted me. I thought that being faithful meant always trying harder to live a holier life and calling them to do the same. I thought that it meant knowing everything I could about scripture and theology, showing up every time the church doors were open and never saying no to anyone in need. 
I thought that it meant ignoring my own needs and those of my family until they went away altogether, leaving me free to serve God without any selfish desires to drag me down. I thought that being faithful was about becoming someone other than who I was, in other words. And it was not until this project failed that I began to wonder if my human wholeness might be more useful to God than my exhausting goodness. So friends, this is what I've been pondering as I've held both this story in Luke and the unfinished story of my life and our lives. What if human wholeness and flourishing are what the miracles of Jesus are signaling? Not Jesus helping us to escape our humanity, but to live more fully into it. And really, not just our wholeness, but the healing and wholeness of all creation. What if the miracles aren't about God showing off his authority flexing those divine muscles to prove that he is God? What if the miracles are more like God, so delighted to share communion with us, peeling back the curtain of the kingdom to give us a sneak peek of the beautiful wholeness we are all headed for? What is the kingdom of God like? Surprise, it's profoundly human. It's profoundly relational. It's the small mustard seed of God's grace growing in all the places we thought were dead. The kingdom of God is when the least of these stand up straight and are seen and honored. It's when the proud and powerful are healed of what is crushing their humanity so that they too can be named the daughters and sons of God. It's about all of us, not some of us, but all of us, belonging together, living into the miracle story of God's love and what this love will one day make of us. Turning us, as the prophet Isaiah puts it, from a parched place to a well-watered garden, from ancient ruins to a people who raise up the foundations of a new beautiful city. People of God, we are not there yet, but in Jesus the Christ, that kingdom is here, and we can live in the unfolding miracle of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So friends, I urge you, Open your hands and receive this kingdom. Believe in the miracle of your own healing and that of the world's. Rather than fixing your attention on what's big and impressive and loud and scary, notice the small turnings toward the light, the new openings of your hearts, the smallest of cracks in the seeds from which new life will come and take heart. There's more resurrection ahead. 
Life will come from death. All will be well. All will be well. All manner of things will be well. Amen.
As we continue now with the prayer chants, you are invited in the silence of your hearts to offer your prayers of intercession and supplication, those prayers for the world, for those you love, and for yourself to be given to God. Thank you. 
Holy God, you have fed us in silence, in song, in word, and in community. And for that, we give you our thanks and our praise. Amen. As we go forth this morning, let us go with Sharon's voice ringing in our ears. My human wholeness might be more useful to God than my exhausting wholeness. May it be so. And may the grace of God who created you in love, the peace of Christ who teaches it is possible to be love, and the power of the Spirit who calls you ever forward into new experiences of love, be and abide with you this day, this week, and evermore. Amen.